We're counting down, we're counting up again, we're ranking all the Beatles songs, we're counting down, we're counting up again, we're ranking all the Beatles songs, ranking them songs away, counting them songs away. You rank some poppy songs? You rank some druggy songs? <laughs> <laughs> you rank some George songs? You rank some Ringo songs? Oh. There you go. Ooh, look at that. <laughs> What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Ranking the Beatles. Episode number 43. How's everybody doing this week? Hope you're all doing smashingly. Uh, I'm Jonathan. And I'm Julia. Uh, welcome to our show. How's it going this week? How are you, my dear? I'm good. I'm really tired. Yeah, we've had a busy one. We have had a busy one, and it feels good. Like, lots of people are getting vaccinated. Yeah. We're, things in New Orleans where we are feel like they're kind of opening up a little bit. We're easing ourselves back into some some life. Yeah. We went to some breweries this weekend. We did. I had shows. three shows this weekend. I played three shows, socially oh, yeah, distant did. shows this weekend. I haven't sang that much in a long time. So for those of you who have commented in the past on my sultry voice, today I've got that real deep thing going. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very Barry White. I feel like I'm even a little raspy today. Yeah. Because when you go to a show and you're wearing a mask and you're trying to talk over the music and through a mask, you have to talk pretty loudly. Yep. So there was a lot of that this weekend. It was nice to like see some friends out. Yeah. And um, have, a, have a little fun outside yeah. of the house. Yeah. we I did uh, two shows this weekend. Uh, it's Easter weekend on the calendar as we're recording in real time today. Um, I had two shows this weekend with my Beatles cover band, The Walrus. And uh, lots of fun to get out and play those songs with those guys. And uh, the crowds all seem to really enjoy it, as they generally tend to do. Because mm -hmm. uh, the songs are, you know, pretty good. So. <laughs> Uh, we actually added this week's song into the set list for the first time, yeah. and uh, it was good. Hadn't didn't even rehearse it. We just all talked about it over text and gave it a listen and showed up and did the dang thing. And well, I mean, everyone in your band are amazing musicians in their own right. Like, <laughs> thank you. You're all very talented people who know and love the Beatles. So I feel like for a not super complicated song, sure, that's like. It's not surprising for me because oh, you're all you. very talented and like you you sort of know these songs. And if there's like a little part to it that you don't know, like you can there's the Internet. So yeah. you just look it up <laughs> really quick. Um, but like, yeah, you guys are your total pros. Oh, man. Thank you're you. amazing. Everyone's always making me feel real good today. Aww. We actually on Thursday night, uh, Thursdays was like a pop up last minute show. And we took about 10 minutes during soundcheck and learned getting better. And this boy, Goodness, <laughs> which was like. Even I was impressed by how quickly we did that. Yeah. So always fun to play those songs. Always fun to uh, immerse myself in this Beatle life right. I've found myself in. Which, uh, speaking of immersing ourselves in Beatle life, let's talk about our guest this week. So, y'all, if Beatles fandom has one thing that there's certainly no shortage of, it is books about the Beatles. Um, it's really its own, like, separate industry. I currently have 30 in our house, which I'm sure to Julia... Or the average person probably seems like overkill. 
Well, we have in our house, um, we have uh, some shelves in the living room, sort of around the TV, bookshelves, obviously. Um, And then I had some shelves built upstairs in this little hallway area for his record collection. And I told him, I was like, you have to take all your Beatles books and split them up between the living room shelves (laughs) and the upstairs shelves. Because if anyone looks at all of your books together, they're going to leave immediately <laughs> they're gonna be like this is too much or they're gonna I be like to do you host a podcast about the Beatles? <laughs> um yeah so you know we have like 30 in our house and i'm realizing now after looking through our guest instagram feed that i'm missing a ton of books and that's a big bummer um but that's you know the 30 that i do have though that is like a drop in the pond thousands of books have been written about the beatles lord knows how many magazines have been devoted to them uh, our guest today hosts a podcast in which he chats with the authors of various books about the Beatles, as well as his own collection. Uh, it's quite extensive and fantastic. Uh, the podcast is fantastic with some amazing stories and discussions. Super excited to have him on as we continue to uh, make all kinds of new friends in Beatle podcast land. So everybody, please welcome to the show the host of the Beatles Books podcast, Joe Wisby. Well, let's uh, let's hop into it a little bit. I want to ask yeah. you, you know, as as we always kind of do, uh, you know, how do you first discover the Beatles? What was your first uh, your first entry into this world? Well, um, bizarrely, I can uh, remember the well, I, I can't remember, but I can tell you the date that I first kind of discovered the Beatles because, and I have told this story on other uh, podcasts, um, but I will share it again with you because I love telling it. So, in 1992. Uh, I was eight years of age and I was a big uh, soccer fan, football fan. <laughs> uh, and that day, that day, there was a big football match that was the England were, were playing. Uh, it was a Sunday afternoon. And before the match started, uh, ITV, the channel that was showing the match, was showing help. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I was unaware, obviously, of, of really who or what the Beatles were. Uh, so I had the TV was on Sunday afternoon in the living room and I just caught sight of the beginning of hell. Whereas you probably both know, they get out of their car and they go into what looks like four separate houses. Mm-hmm. And then they behind the door, it's one big house. I love and I that. was like, that looks cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My eight year old head was like, that looks like the most fun ever. Uh, so I, I watched them and of course helps this crazy roly poly big bright colours, them having a great time. I was like, this is great, and I, I love the songs. Now, that weekend in June of 92 was Paul McCartney's 50th birthday. Mm-hmm. So they were showing, that was why they were showing help. And then later on in the evening, uh, way past my bedtime, but half past 10 at night, they showed a documentary about the making of Sergeant Pepper mm-hmm. because it was 25 years since Sergeant Pepper had come out and Paul was 50. Um, so I, I kind of realized this and I, I, I asked my, my mother who very kindly, uh, recorded it on a VHS cassette for nice. me uh, because obviously, obviously I was, I was fast asleep. And then the Monday I went to school and I was so excited to get home and watch this, this video. So I, I get in from school on the Monday and then I put this in and it's the documentary that's on the Sergeant Pepper box set DVD that came out a few years ago. So mm-hmm. it, it was that documentary. Right. And, uh, which, and of course, that, in that documentary, they show all the photographs and the footage of Sergeant Pepper. And they've all got these moustaches and these crazy clothes, and they look like... And I was like, hang on a minute. 
that can't be the same four guys that were <laughs> running around in the snow in help. Right. Uh, it completely blew my mind. And um, from that point on, uh, I, you know, I, I kind of uh, discovered, I, I, you know, from that point on, it got into my heart, the, the music. And, you know, as you both know, once it's in there, it, it doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah. Was there was there a first uh, a first song or album that really like sunk its teeth into you and like made you, you know, that flipped you from like the new listener to like the hardcore? I've got to find everything I can on this fan. Well, probably the first one that I can remember loving was I got the cassette of uh, the Red album, you know, the mm-hmm. Red and Blue albums that came out. I got the cassette um, and. It was probably all my loving on that that I just loved, mm-hmm. um, which of course little did I know was going was the song that they first played on Ed Sullivan and that all of America loved as well. Yeah. So I always feel a little bit of kind of uh, com- uh, kind of a, a solidarity with all those first generation fans that saw that. I just, I just completely loved all my loving, and then of course after that, the next kind of thing that happens is on my tenth birthday. So I still show an interest in the Beatles between being eight and nine and stuff. And then my, my dad got me for my 10th birthday, the BBC, Live at the BBC uh, album, mm-hmm. which is quite a strange thing because I, I didn't have all the albums. And, of course, that's all covers and live versions of songs. Um, but that was the kind of the current release. That was, you, you know, that was you remember, that was yeah. a big, big big deal at the time. That was new Beatles music, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the following year, anthology 95 comes out and that was when so i think that's such anthology is such an important thing for people of, of a certain kind of age yeah because it was like wow this is this new beatles music and you can watch every week uh you could watch an, a documentary about the beatles that i was you know pre-internet of course so I, I couldn't go online and wikipedia the beatles at that point right uh i could I could look up, look 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 them up on Encarta, maybe the online, you know, the the CD ROM encyclopedia. Uh, <laughs> yes, but um, yes, anthology was when that was probably uh, when I that was the thing that really kind of cemented my my fandom. Yeah, so I'm curious to know, you know, when do when did the books enter the picture for you? Because that was something for me once I discovered that like my local library had things not just on books for like things I needed to learn about for school, but on things that I was interested in. It was like, wait, so this library has eight books about the Beatles, but this other one has seven more. And this other library has like five different books. And my school library has, Oh my God. (laughs) Libraries are great. They have all the books (laughs) on all the things I like. Like that was like a mind blower because I didn't realize, you know, as you just kept finding more and more and you're like, they never stop coming. Oh my God. So like, how yeah. do you get into the books thing? Well, I, um, I've always loved as a kid, I was, I was a big reader. I'm an only child. Mm-hmm. So, um, I used to have a book in every room of the house when I was like a little kid. So I'd have like my, my kitchen book and my living room book and <laughs> I'd pick it up and then carry it. That was just what I, you know, I just loved reading as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, my parents, uh, they divorced when I was about five. So every Saturday, I'd go and see my dad. And my dad uh, is still a big Beatles fan. Um, not to the level that, you know, I got to. But, mm. you know, he was uh, he was born in 1948. So he was the right, just about the right kind of time for, for the Beatles. Right. So he said, and, and he is a big, big reader. So we, um, he took me into just the local bookstore, really, in, in, in Brentwood, where I, where I grew up. And 
uh, as you say, yeah, you, you got that sense that there would be a, like a music book section. This is like 1995, so mm. you know the, the 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 music book industry is well well on its way. And on that music book section, there would be like a Bowie book and a Dylan book and a book about you know the current you know I don't know Madonna or something. But there'd be like seven or eight Beatles books, mm-hmm. and I remember thinking that's strange. Why is there so many books? But there's only one book about Dexys Midnight Runners. Or something. You know, there was just like <laughs> I, I couldn't because obviously when you're a kid, you don't understand. Oh, you know, that's a heritage art. You know what artists mean and stuff. You're like the Beatles are just music. You know. Mm. You, the music you hear on the radio is just music so that kind of piqued my interest and then uh, he got me we went and i remember on the saturday and he got me a very basic kind of like picture book i suppose you'd say of the beatles that kind of told the story mm-hmm. which i've still got um and then he got a copy which he bought himself when he was about 20 in 1968 of the hunter davis um authorized biography of the beatles mm-hmm. um so i've still got his copy, um, he still asked for it back from me, but I'm going to keep it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Is it like, an, have, like a, an original 1968? Yeah. Pro- oh, nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, yeah, keep it's, that. <laughs> yeah I've got that. Well, yeah, I, I'm lucky enough I got to meet Hunter Davis about 10 years ago, so he signed it for me. So I've that. got a little... Um, I, I met him at like a, a talk that he did, and he, he saw that I had... I was Then I was 10 years ago, so I was like 26. Mm-hmm. So he was like, what? How did you get this? <laughs> I was like, well, my dad. Um, so, uh, yeah, he gave me that book. And that book is the the only, as we speak, the only authorised book that's ever come out about the Beatles. And that told the Beatles story in quite a basic way. But essentially the beats of all the books that you we've all seen, they all come from that Hunter Davis book. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I just kind of, because the way that he told the story, because Hunter was a journalist and was a very talented writer, um, I kind of fell in love with the story yeah. as much as the music. Mm-hmm. And not everyone, I get that not everyone um, feels that. You know, I'm sure the, the people, all the people that you've spoken to, you have that great position where the people that you speak to all come at the Beatles in a different way and they all appreciate the Beatles in a different way. But for me, I just loved all these characters that knew them and, and that worked with them and that were friends when they were at school. And I just loved the the story of it. And, of course, once, you know, you, as you say, once you realise that even in the 90s there were hundreds of books, mm-hmm. I was like, well, I want to find out more. Yeah. And, and, I'm, and I'm still finding out more now. Nice. That's, you know, I, th- I think I'm 100% with you on the idea of the story being such a, a big part of it because I think that's what cements it for me, you know, was a big part of it for me was like for these guys who, you know, did so much and, you know, were so different all the time for some reason, you know, and it's with other bands, um, this kind of thing doesn't always hold true, but you know, we had a, a guest on Sean Nelson, uh, from the band Harvey danger who said, uh, mm-hmm. you don't choose your favorite beetle. Your favorite beetle chooses you. And I think everyone like, connects to one of them in some way, which is strange because they seem so superhuman, but yet so human at the same time. Like there's always one that you feel like that's who I kind of model myself after in some way. Um, And that's such a neat place to be. And to dive further into that story is always so fun and fascinating. 
two things. First of all, that episode was probably my favourite episode <laughs> of your <laughs> Thank you. show. I was, I, he was just a fantastic, brilliant episode. Um, Thank you. We honestly could have talked uh, for like five more hours. Right? Like that, yeah, it was yeah. hard to yeah. wrap up because we were just like, go on. My thing about the favourite Beatle is, um, I, you know, that's something else, that, you know, that people identify with the different Beatle at, at different points in their life. And this is kind of how I feel that now is... When you were a kid, so when I was a kid, I, I loved Ringo because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all the footage in Anthology, even the interviews that you give for Anthology, he's just having the best time. Yeah. And when you're like nine and ten, you just want to have the best time, don't you? You just want to mm-hmm. run and play and whatever, you know, discover stuff. And then when I was a teenager, John was like the guy. Yep. <laughs> John was like the cool guy and he was, you know, witty and sharp and, you know, he he didn't give a damn and, you know, he lived in New York and, you know, especially for for, you know, in uh, for me as a kid in in England, New York's this kind of cool place where, you know, the, you, can, you can get pizza whenever you want. Or I, I don't know, you know, it just <laughs> it, it just seemed like like fun, you know. So then and then when you're in your 20s, it's from it, it was George. Because George is all about, I think I, I kind of get the thing with George is that he's all about self. George is, you know, he's very spiritual, but at the same time, he also, you know, was very financially wise and looked after himself and his family at the same time, you know. Uh, and when you're in your 20s, you're kind of about, it's about you, isn't it? You're discovering you and you're living your life and you're finding out who you are and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then when you get older, so I'm, yeah, 36 now. And um, suddenly, uh, probably about five or six years ago, it it was just Paul. Yeah. It was like, my, it's just, it's always been Paul. Because what Paul's about is, you know, family. And you might, as you get older, you might be lucky and you might meet someone and get married. And you might have kids and you might, you know, have a great family life and stuff. And that's what he's about, I think, especially in his solo work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, And he just seems like, you just relate to Paul as you get older, I think, more. Um, you know, like the the line that always reminds me of... Um, the, the line that always gets me that, that he wrote is in Maybe I'm Amazed, um, which I think is a, is a fantastic song, oh, one, God, of my, yeah. you know, one of the best songs ever. Um, and that line, um, Maybe I'm Afraid of the Way I Love You All the Time. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, thinking about my the relationship that, that I'm in, how scary is that as a guy right how scary right. is that when you meet someone and you love someone and you're like well that's you know and rather where's that's not John how i'm programmed you know? to be like yeah i'm programmed exactly. to be like macho you know hardcore guy who doesn't need you know no woman <laughs> you've never been that yeah. guy. No. <laughs> that's not true for me <laughs> but, but no but that's that there's sort of a sense that you know i think that that sums up you know as you realize that when you're young and you're actually a teenager and you're in your twenties, as a man especially, you know it's all about macho posturing to a mm-hmm. certain extent. It, especially when 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 we were younger in like the nineties. Yeah. I know now it's a it's a different thing now. I think um, for because of the way that society's changed. But yeah, that you completely just Paul just speaks to you i think more as you get older yeah that's just my take but you know i, I love th- them you all. know i think that's that's incredible though i think that there's this amazing kind of through line that i think you just kind of nailed um of of maturity and growth and i think one of the things that uh, that as a teenager like i was you know john was my guy he was cool he was confident he was cocky he was everything that i wasn't 
at least <laughs> now that I'm older, I know that that's not at all how he was, and it's all a facade. Mm. Um, and you know, now that I'm, you know, my late thirties, I'm 39. Um, mm. I now, like like you, I relate more to Paul in that, like, I love my, I love, you know, having a family and being married. Um, and mm. I also can understand like the dynamic of like having to make a band work and trying to like wrangle all these personalities. Um, while juggling with your own, like, your own thing. Um, so I, I feel like I, the more I understand them all, like as I get older and you can kind of see like why John was as arrogant and cocky and obnoxious as he was in his twenties, it's cause he was depressed all the time. Like he had like mm. mental health issues that went largely unchecked mm. and, you know, self-medicated. And then you've got, you know, and so then you get to a point where like the guy checks out kind of mentally and, you know, Paul's like, we got to keep working. Wait, what? Okay, well, I'll pick up some slack. And then he's bossy. And so then you feel bad for him. And now, like, the story makes so much more sense as you get older. Um, mm. Yeah, and I, I think that's, you know, I agree with you 110% on that <laughs> fandom track, though. I think that's exactly yeah. the route I've taken. And I think Paul is also really great at uh, just sort of, like, expressing human emotions and vulnerability. Like, just like that line you just quoted mm. from maybe I'm Ace, like it, it's so vulnerable and it's rare for people to, to say, to vocalize to millions of people yeah. that yeah. amount, that level of just like, I love this person so much that it scares me because I've never felt this way before. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but like, sh- shit, what, <laughs> what do I do with all of this inside yeah. of me? Well, I'm going to put it in a song. Yeah. And, and, I'll <laughs> and count- make people cry. <laughs> and, and I'll counter that maybe I think even the more important line is, you know, maybe I'm a lonely man who's in the middle of something that he doesn't really understand. You know, that yeah. that involves both, you know, romantic relationship, you know, growth. And all of a sudden he's on his own for the first time since he was 15. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's in a whole new world having to restart his life again, doesn't know what to do. Like that's that's an open wound on display right there. Like mm-hmm. that's a, a, a vulnerable line. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. for sure. For I'd sure. like to take this moment to remind our listeners that at Ranking the Beatles, we do not hate Paul McCartney. <laughs> we genuinely love Paul McCartney. <laughs> <We genuinely> <laughs> love <laughs> Every week, another message comes through. <laughs> Why do you guys hate Paul? We don't hate Paul. <laughs> but yeah, it's and it, it somehow he takes these like very human, complex emotions, and just it, it, it almost seems easy for him to put them out there on display. Like it's really hard for normal folks like us. But but he just is just like, hi, here here's me in a song millions and millions of people yeah. like I'm just I'm putting it all out there and like that's so brave and it's so nice that like you can refer to it as a touch point like you can say like I'm feeling this this song that's mm. that's how I feel thank you Paul yeah. for like putting it out there because it's you know hard for people to say their their little feelings sometimes yeah. Yeah. so especially for guys yeah, yeah especially, especially for guys, guys. yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, well and me the <laughs> the Juliatron 5000 she has no feelings <laughs> <laughs> he's actually the nothing. he's the sap of this relationship. It's totally true. <laughs> totally true. Um, okay. I, I do want to ask also, you know, how many Beatles books do you have at this point? I know your Instagram what? is a endless feed and I love it. <laughs> so I'm curious what your grand total is. Do you know? Um 
at some point I did keep a spreadsheet of the books, yes. um, but I think I crashed Excel. I think you know. I think <laughs> did you Bill Gates it? was like, "What? What are you doing?" You know. Were you, were you, were, um, no, I didn't color code. <laughs> That's where you go. That's where you go I, off the rails. But I, I, I stopped. I don't know why, but I, I, I stopped doing that. Um, I'm on. I think it's about. So we think. I say we. I think there's been about since the mid sixties. Between a thousand and fifteen hundred ever published. Really, it's difficult. Yeah, the, I would the, think the, it's uh, way higher than that. But I think, well, I, I think English language that's uh-huh. that so that rules out. Obviously, there are books that have come out that sure. haven't been translated. But okay. I think it's round about fifteen hundred okay. that have ever been published. Obviously, not all of them are in print now. Right, awful. Loads of them aren't. I've, I'm looking at I've, between. 400 to 450 mm-hmm. is what i'm i'm on now okay which is far which is far too much for a rational human being to ever have <laughs> on anything i love it though but it's just and of course the, the the kind of the thing that's happened in the last year is since doing the instagram feed is publishers uh, you know get in touch with me and so you know i've got a it's a, a, a five thousand following on there now of people that are interested in the books and Beatles. Uh-huh. So therefore I become a way of, you know, quite understandably of advertising their book. Right. So I very kindly get sent complimentary copies of oh, Beatles nice. books, sometimes two or three. So I'll do a giveaway on, yeah. on Twitter for, uh, for that. So I get the, you know, I get quite uh, very kindly. I get these. So that now I'm, I don't even have to buy them now. <laughs> <laughs> Living and the I, dream. Joe, you're yeah, an influencer. Uh, that's what that's called. You're a Beatle influencer. You're a Beatle influencer. Put that it's, in your yep, bio yep. on it's all your It's true. Socials. It's true. What can <laughs> I say? What can I say? And so um, yeah, so there, I mean, as we, you know, as we speak, there are talks ongoing with the British bookstore to get a little kind of association going. So maybe I am, um, uh, yeah, maybe I'm the new, I'm a Kardashian or something. I don't know. I'm trying to think of a cool influencer. I can't think of one. Yes. You're the Kardashian <laughs> of Beatles books. I love it. Yes. That's me. Yes. I love it. <laughs> now, have you have you read all the books that you have? I would say I've read. I've certainly looked at all of them. Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, you know, a good chunk of them are mainly photo books. Sure. So, uh, you know, which I love. You know, I love you know pictures of the Beatles. I can and never stop looking at pictures of the Beatles for yeah. any era, solo or obviously when they were a group. Um, there are some that that you know, as you guys both know that are crazy that are strange and that are just bad yeah um so i'll start to i'll start to read uh some of them and i'm like this is not i'm not getting any joy from this i mean there's some really crazy ones out there yeah uh but so yes if if i don't get any joy from it then i won't i won't continue with it but i've definitely at least looked at and read parts of all of them that i've got on the show what do you find that you're looking for in a Beatles book, like when you pick up a new one, what are you hoping to get from it? I'm hoping for someone that really loves the subject. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. I think that's, you know, you, there's famous examples in the past where people have written Beatles books and they haven't really liked the Beatles. Right. Uh, which I think, I think you've got to be, you know, objective and, you know, you get some books that everything they did was great solo and, and that's not interesting really. And that's not, you know, that's not exciting, mm-hmm. but you've got to have someone that understands be what being a Beatles fan is like. Right. Um, or someone that understands what being, you know, this uh, is a really good book by 
former guest on the Beatles Books podcast, Tom Doyle, uh, <laughs> who wrote a book, a really great book called Man on the Run, which is about Wings and Paul McCartney in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's obviously, you know, not all the music that Paul made in the 70s is outstanding, but he clearly loves Paul, understands what made Paul successful. Uh, so therefore, that book is a really, really great book. Uh, yeah, you've got to have someone that understands the subject and that has some kind of passion for the subject. Um, obviously, it's good to know, you know, to find out stuff that you didn't know, um, which is, you know, there's only so much to know, I suppose. Right. Um, but the other thing what I love is, obviously, the, you've got the Beatles story, you know, mm. which starts in whenever and ends in whenever. But I love, like, the little the little kind of side alleys of a Beatles story. So there's a really cool book which is coming out uh, called Fab Falls, which is uh, by a talented author called Jem, Jem Roberts, and it's about the Beatles and comedy. And it looks oh, at cool. the, so, the association of, you know, um, you've got a whole load on the Ruttles in there, um, you know, the, uh, the kind of, their kind of story, what influenced them, what comedians they hung out with, the comedy that they liked. Mm-hmm. So stuff that wouldn't, would only feature a little bit in a, a you know, in a, a biography. But there it's expanded over a whole book. So I love looking at those, you know. Or uh, an, another cool thing is where you get someone that uh, had an association with the Beatles and you can tell their story. So I've just done an interview, actually, and there's a, 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 with an author that wrote a book about a guy called Robert Fraser who owned an art gallery art in gallery. London in the yeah. 60s mm-hmm. um, and was famously busted with Mick and Keith. When Mick and Keith got busted for yes. drugs, he was in the house that day and he got sent to prison with... Well, he got sent to prison with, with them. Um, but he was he knew Paul and uh, was friends with Paul and John launched his... Uh, he did his first... He did like an art exhibition there with Yoko, uh, this Robert Fraser's gallery. So his story is, is, a, is a fascinating story on its own, but because there's a Beatles association with it, I get I get loads from it. So yeah. they're, they're my main kind of pick-up points that I, I look for in, in a really good Beatles book. Fantastic. You have my permission to buy all of those books. They yes. all sound great. Those are great recommendations. <laughs> Thanks, like Especially, like, order that Paul McCartney book, like, right. Like, after we're done filming, please. Yes. I want that. Have you got a lot? Have you got a lot? I've what, got... What kind of level are we looking at? I've got 30. Um, did you count? I did. <laughs> I did before, that. but what what I've realized as I've looked through your feed, I'm missing a ton, and I don't know where they are. So I I feel like like you had them before, had and they've them, just disappeared. And I feel like I maybe lost them, like or maybe in like a move out of like after college or something, or maybe I gave some. I probably lent some to friends and just never got them back. Because mm-hmm. um, the only one that I can think of that I like lent a friend and then was like, I need that book back, is the uh, recording the Beatles. Uh, book that like that real thick 400 page one that was like hella expensive mm. <laughs> it's like yo that's an mm. expensive book i want that back um who did you lend it to kyle oh <laughs> yeah that but makes, he also he lent me his like mono original sergeant pepper so like yeah no had, it's fine like you lent it to someone to you trust who yeah. also loves the beatles but you're like i need that for the podcast yeah. <laughs> but yeah i i know i'm missing a bunch um i'd guesstimate i probably saw 20 on your feed that i know i had at some point and now i can't mm. find them um so I don't know. I, I know I also gave a bunch of books to a library a couple of years ago when I was mm-hmm. just trying to like empty some bookshelves where it was like, I don't need it anymore. Um, but I'm currently at 30. Um, okay. I don't remember the last time I got one. No, the last one I got was um, it's called You Never Give Me Your Money and it's examination on the business dealings of the Beatles. Um, <laughs> I bought that as a, 
as a business expense to learn about the pratfalls to avoid in band finances <laughs> for a previous band. So, okay. yeah. And that okay. band still That's ended in debt, so it didn't quite work. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I do enjoy the books. I haven't read one, like a new one in a while, like in terms of like a full biography, um, just because I felt like I'd gotten to a point where I was reading the same takes over and over again. Um, yeah. And I know that like the story's kind of evolving as like new things come out. Um, so I feel like it is time to start diving a little back into that end of it, but I also want to start going more into like the solo end of things like that McCartney book sounds truly interesting. Um, yes, it does. You should order that, please. (laughs) The, uh, (laughs) the plastic Ono band book that just came out. I really want to look at that. Like that looks really good. And I'm sure the imagined one is really good too. I would also recommend, um, Ken Womack, uh, who's a fantastic author. He, so he, he's written a two-volume biography of George Martin, which is really good, but he's, his book that came out last year about John in 1980, mm-hmm. uh, which is an excellent book. And he doesn't go down the kind of true crime aspect of John in 1980. Right. So he kind of has this idea where if John didn't see it, it's not in the book. So you don't get any of the, the drama. Of, of, yeah. No, no. Yeah, and also you don't get any of the you know uh, the post December eighth mm-hmm. stuff, right? Which is you know which there are books out there that cover that if you want to read sure. that, and that's fine. But it's um yeah, it's really uh it's really great. The, the there's a there's a great bit in it where um uh, you, David Geffen, that of course is the uh, the record label owner, um mm-hmm. tells tells Yoko that Double Fantasy at this point has been out for about two weeks. It's not doing as well as, as they were they were hoping, you know. Um it was doing well, it wasn't doing as well. Uh so Yoko is in the Dakota and apparently apparently um, they're sat in the kind of living room of the, the Dakota and Sean's there and Yoko tells John it's not doing as well as we, we were hoping. And apparently John says, um, it's okay. We still have the family. Oh. And I thought, what a great, I mean, she must treasure that. Right. And then, you know, in a week he's gone, you know, or, yeah. or whatever. Um, you know, it's what, what, what a fantastic thing to, to find yeah. out that, um, that, that she said. Well, uh, and so, you, yeah, and you and hear that great. and you, it makes you feel happy for him as somebody who spent his entire life looking for family, you know, and looking yeah. for that, uh, that anchor to his life to like, at least, you know, like when he, you know, when, when he was taken from us, like he was mm. in a happy place. And that's like, yeah, that's a bit of a silver lining, if anything, mm-hmm. you know, but that uh, sounds like the other a good thing. Read. Yeah. The other thing in that book that's great is the last interview that he gave to a DJ called Dave Shaolin um, on a New York radio station. that's called, and I don't, it's always W something. I don't, I don't know how it works. <laughs> over there. There. W-E-T-V-R. Yeah. 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 Whatever, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so they're in. He gives this um, this DJ lift back uh, to somewhere in New York where this guy lived, obviously. And uh, the, in the back of the car, he says, "Come on, John, tell us the truth about you and Paul. What you know? What's 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 really the the kind of nub of what's going on kind of now?" And John just says, "Um, uh, it, it, you know, I do anything for him, and I know that he'd do anything for me." Yeah, Ugh. you know, and that's that's yeah. so. Yeah, I. It's quite an emotional book, but if you're looking for a kind of a, a, a recent, recent publication, I would go with the Ken Womack. Beautiful. I need. Yeah, I, I've heard a lot about the Ken Womack books, and I've also heard he's a great podcast interview too. Wasn't um, he on Blotto? He did do Blotto Beatles. So. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, he was my first episode. Yep, yep. He was my very oh. first, uh, very kind. I mean, I didn't have any, um, obviously at that point, I didn't have any other interviews. Like now when I approach an author, I can say, well, I've got these 20 episodes. Yeah. Uh, you know, you guys know that. It, you get a bit more mm-hmm. kind of clout if you've got a back catalogue. Yeah. Um, but Ken was, yeah, fantastic. He's written a, a new book, which is due out in a couple of months, about George Harrison and Eric Clapton in 1970. Okay. Um, which is, uh, obviously, you've got the personal wife situation yeah. going on there. <laughs> that whole drama. Spicy. Uh, but also, George was doing All Things Must Pass, and Eric Clapton was doing Layla mm-hmm. at the same time. So it's about the making of that. So, yeah, Ken's wonderful, and I, if you can get... If you can get him on, I would 100% recommend you do. I, yes, I need to look into that. Has anyone done, like, a really good book on Ringo? Well, there's two major, I say major biographies. Uh, there's one that came out in um, 90, it came out originally in 92. Mm-hmm. It's, called Ring, it's, it's called Ringo Starr, Straight Man or Joker. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> that's what it's called. Yikes. Um, Poor dude. That's by... That's by, yeah, that's by an English author called Alan Clayson, who's written quite a few books, and that got republished about 2005. Then an American author called, believe it or not, Michael Seth Starr. That's his name, Seth Starr. Seth Starr. Uh, No relation to Ringo Starr. (laughs) He wrote a book, which is is quite, which I think he's called With a Little Help, um, which came out about 2010 or so, and that's, interesting that's good if you're good that's probably the best book about Ringo um because that looks at the solo mm-hmm. you know you need a, if you're going to write a book about a Beatle I think you need to go into the solo years because that like you say that's the kind of the kind of virgin snow with yeah. no one's kind of explored that part um so yeah I would leave the Alan Clayson book I would go with Michael Sestar um if you're looking for a little bit of because uh, Ringo's life after Beatles was pretty dramatic yeah you know? he does all kinds you know? of things like, yeah. how in the world does he get into, like, a TV broadcast version of Alice in Wonderland as the tortoise? Like, it's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. And as a child, it terrified me. But, like, how does he end up in that? It makes no sense. I, wanted, I would love to know, like, the in-depth story of how that happens. Or how he gets involved with the... Over here, it's called Thomas' Hank Engine. Yeah. And of, of, is it called Shining, Shining Time, Time Station? Shining Time was what it was here, yeah. Mr. Conductor. Um, it, so, is that other? <laughs> so strange. Mr. Conductor, yeah. And he's in another, he's in a made for TV, um, yeah, like film uh, from in 1986 with Barbara, with his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and they play, with, with, it's called Princess Daisy. I've it's, not uh, heard of this. Ah, <laughs> uh, right. It's never come out on any kind of home release, but I think it might be on YouTube if you really dig deep enough. And it's those kind of. Uh, if I said like Danielle Steele, you know, like oh God, um, yeah. made, f- yeah, it's like that, right? Uh-huh. And he, he and Bar, it's got Rupert Everett's the the lead in it, uh-huh. um, and uh, he and Barbara play bisexual fashion designers. Uh, <laughs> it's they're not in it that much, but when they're in it, they stay. You can't miss them. I am you know, you here for see. that. That's amazing. Yeah. Princess Daisy. It's got a bit of an all-star cast, but yeah. Rupert Everett, I think, is the lead, and they're in it a little bit. But, it's so um, interesting. He's yeah. done so much stuff that is no longer available, and that's mm. fascinating because everything Paul has ever done is available. And now, mm. like, things that he didn't release at the time, those things are coming out now. Um, but, like, yeah. is Ringo going to ever put out the uh, Ogneer Rats TV special? Like, 
with, with Carrie Fisher. With Carrie Fisher. Carrie and, Fisher. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, yeah. there's, there's room for that on some kind of reissue. I don't know why he's sitting on that. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I think some of his albums aren't even on streaming services. If you look at if you look on Spotify, there are some of the. I mean, some of them are pretty average. Sure. You know, some of the Ringo albums in the like late seventies are pretty average. But you think you know you, you wanna? I tell you what's really good actually. I, I don't know if you know he did an album in '92 with do you know the band Jellyfish that came out yeah. early nineties band? Yeah, they did. They're fantastic kind of Beatlesque band. Just did the two albums, and they co-wrote some stuff with him. Huh. Um, they did. They had a big hit with over here. I don't know about over over there with uh, uh, the King is half undressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, really great, great song. Their album, the first album, came out the same day that Nevermind came out. Oh wow! And they just had no, they just had <laughs> yeah. no chance. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Ringo's first out, uh, Ringo's album with them, uh, Weight of the World, I think it's called. I remember um, that song. I remember seeing him do that on David Letterman actually. Right. Yeah. 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 There's lots of, so, you know, as we just proved there, you can look at, you can get a book out of, you know, you can get a really good book about Paul in the 80s or John in LA or George in the film industry. You know, yeah. there's so much, so much stuff out there. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe, have you ever considered writing a book? Because you may have found your book. <laughs> <laughs> if I was going to write a book, I, tell you what, I was thinking about this the other day. If I wish I couldn't, I don't think I could ever do. But hey, you know, I never thought I could do a podcast. So right. now, you know, <laughs> um, I think I would look at. I've just been reading a really fantastic book about the nineties, um, called by an author called Daniel Rachel, who's got a book about the Beatles coming out this year, uh, called "Don't Look Back in Anger," and it's a story of kind of Britpop and, oh. um, uh, yeah, well, well, yeah, it's, 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 I'm sure it's out over there. It's, it's like an oral history. So he speaks to. It's not like a prose as such. It's just he speaks to all the major players of the 90s. Mm. And I was thinking, I think you could get a good book about how the perception of the Beatles changes through the 90s and the importance of the anthology. I think, um, you know, a lot of the guests that you've had on... We've touched on that a number of of times. Mm -hmm. We've touched on that a number of times. It's fascinating, anthology. It was, um, yeah, it was a real... I think it really cemented the Beatles... Yeah. Um, uh, in the kind of both of the both America and the US kind of consciousness again, it was a huge deal. I mean, it was a yeah. massive thing, massive. wasn't it? It was like, and it's weird to think now that it's you know twenty six years old. Like when I look back at the clips, and I'm like, Paul is so young here. Oh my young. god! <laughs> <laughs> like, like it's it, it's interesting that like there's no, I don't know that they could do a another like version of that in some way because it's so massive, but. Mm. It seems strange with the way that, like, with just the way that fandoms work now and the way that, like, they're presented as an entity, that there's no, like, updated version of it. Like, I don't think you can buy it online anywhere. I don't know. Like, it's not streaming anywhere. Uh, like, it's not on no, Hulu. it's not streaming, is it? Netflix. No, it's not. That's interesting. Like, if you want to yeah. watch it, you have to own it, which I think is mm. a really, like, I mean, that that's kind of always been their thing for the longest time. Like, they weren't on iTunes for years. You know, you had to yeah. own the record. Um, so maybe one day they'll do it, but you know, there's still so much to be told in their story. Um, mm. you know, didn't, I think it was, didn't the anthology air on TV, like prime on, time. Yeah. On ABC is over three weeks. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I remember that and mm. I didn't watch it. Obviously <laughs> I, I, you guys don't You're expect, too cool for spool, spool, I guess. <laughs> but well, I remember it being like a feature thing. Like I remember commercials deal. for it and it was like, you had to commit to 
It was like three hours on, on three consecutive Sunday nights. Yeah. I think. yeah. And my dad was like, God, please let this end. <laughs> it was uh, it was called, I think it, over there it was called A, Beatles, C. Yeah, it was it, on ABC. It was on ABC Network and the commercial was like, oh. A, Beatles, C. What was Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds really about? Find out Sunday on A, Beatles, C. I had I had the and, I, I found the audio from a commercial, uh, like an anthology promo commercial that I used in an episode. I don't remember back. that. Yeah. I just remember it existing and just it was being a big, like, big yeah, deal. I don't have the attention span for that. <laughs> I might have watched like a little bit, but also my parents were not massive Beatles fans. Yeah. So I don't know that they would have had the attention span for that either. Yeah. I, wa- I wonder what you were watching instead on November 1995. What was oh on? Like, she was probably just like... high. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, on a Sunday what? night? I don't know. What was the sitcom that was big over there with, uh, with Helen Hunt? Um, was that, that about on the same you? time? Oh. Yeah, was that on the same time? I think that was oh at the rival. God. You know American that. TV history right? better That's than amazing. <laughs> wow, I don't know what would you what would you have done on a Saturday night at on fourteen? A Sunday, a honestly, night I probably would have been doing my homework because I'm a notorious Good. procrastinator. So, like anything that had to have been done over the weekend, I probably would have waited until Sunday night <laughs> to do it. Um, also, what year was this? Ninety five. I also yeah. we had like the internet at that point. Mm. And, like, I would get on, like, BBC's, like, the bulletin board thing. Like, it was, like, pre- BBS. Was BBS. It? That's yeah. it. Sorry. Not BBC. BBS. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm really tired today. Uh, I would get on BBS's and, like, talk to people. So, I could have also been doing So, it was probably either, Chatting like, with procrastinated homework or <laughs> just messing around on the internet, doing dumb stuff, maybe playing a game or something. Yeah. <laughs> but no, and we were just watching that instead. So yeah. who was having the better time? You know, we'll, we'll never know. We were. Me and Joe yeah. were having a good old time. I'll tell Absolutely. you that. Absolutely. I mean, you remember where you were. I do not. So obviously, I do. You guys I remember win. the whole thing. <laughs> I, I would do my homework early on Sunday those three oh weeks, gosh. so I could watch the show oh, at night. Yeah. So that's definitely important because I know you. Yeah. And I feel like you're a worse procrastinator <laughs> than oh, I am. Yeah, so. <laughs> Yeah. For you to do your homework early, that's pretty <laughs> monumental. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. <laughs> well, we're here for a reason today. Do you want to talk about our, our song for this week? Cool. Coming in this week at number 174 is Misery. The world is treating me bad. Misery. I'm the kind of guy. So in early 1963, as the Beatles are starting to ride high on the success of Love Me Do and the recently released Please Please Me single, manager Brian Epstein is encouraging John and Paul to try their hand at writing songs for other artists. So facing the prospects of an upcoming tour with singer Helen Shapiro, the duo sat down on January 26th of 1963 and began writing the song Misery. The song was originally written with Shapiro's voice and style in mind in hopes that she might be interested in recording the song. 
So the tour begins on February 2nd, and a couple days into the tour, McCartney presents the, uh, the song to Helen Shapiro. Now, the song is ultimately rejected by her manager, probably as being a bit more melancholy than they thought was appropriate uh, for, his art, for their artist. Uh, so when the band enter EMI Studios a few days later to record the rest of their debut album, they decide to add Misery to the track listing. Now, the album's always been presented as essentially a snapshot of their live set at the time, but this song seems to actually be an exception to the rule, as the band spend a good amount of time working up the arrangement, and this is all on tape, uh, you know, captured, I think, eight or nine takes uh, before they get to a keeper, and coincidentally, all of this is available on YouTube. <laughs> if you want to look it up, it's pretty cool. Uh, so the band record nine takes of the song, with the master being an edit of takes seven and nine. Uh, now, after the session, a few days later, uh, George Martin adds piano to the track, filling out the introduction of the song, as well as the descending melody in the bridge, which replaced uh, the part that was originally played by George. Uh, to do this, while the band were tracking the song at some point, George began recording the band at a faster tape speed, allowing him to later slow down the tape to record the piano at a slower speed, and then speed it back up so it has a higher pitch and different sound. It also allows him to play the parts more in time. So this actually marks the first time that George Martin adds his own instrumentation to the song, uh, to a Beatles song, which he'd go on to do a number of times throughout their career, and it's also maybe the first time they do some actual, like, studio experimentation. Not them, but, like, George Martin on a Beatles product. It's the first time he's, you know, diving into his bag of tricks. Uh, so the song is released on the Please Please Me album in the UK in 1963, and on the VJ label introducing the Beatles in the US in 1964. Now, due to a super hard to explain in a short time lawsuit situation uh, between VJ and Capitol Records, the album is pulled from print in 1964. And the flood of releases of early Beatle material from Capitol that year, somehow Misery still falls by the wayside, and with the exception of some singles on a budget label called Starline, uh, Misery is unavailable in the States on any album until May of 1980, when Capitol releases the Rarities compilation. Uh, so the band perform it off and on again in their sets and in multiple BBC sessions uh, through September of 1963, at which point it's retired from their live show. Now, a final note, also on the Helen Shapiro tour was singer Kenny Lynch, maybe best known for his song Up on the Roof. When this old world starts getting me down And people are just too much for me to face I climb way up to the top of the stairs And all my cares just drift right into space Uh, he'd offered to do some writing with John and Paul while they were on tour together. And uh, during their writing session, he apparently emerges from the back of the coach bus they were on, uh, saying that he couldn't write with these guys. They didn't know what they were doing. They were actually writing the song that would become From Me to You. However, uh, Kenny ended up shortly thereafter uh, doing his own cover of Misery, which became a minor hit for him. Um, and John was actually apparently a little miffed that he didn't ask him to play guitar on the track, saying that he would have done it had he been asked. Um, that's not always how it works as a songwriter, though. Just because you write it, you don't always get to play on it. Uh, and Kenny's Beatle connection doesn't end there, though. He turns up years later on the cover of Band on the Run, and he is the fella directly to the left of Paul. So why do I have Misery at 174? I think there's a lot to enjoy on this song, actually. You know, starting off, the benefit of hindsight with their catalog is always good. Um, there's something to this song that I think sounds somewhat unbeatle like um, You know, maybe it's because they're John and Paul especially usually aren't so dour overtly dour in their lyrics. That's usually George's thing. Um, 
but I think also it's kind of a, it's kind of a restrained song in its performance. So it almost seems like it's maybe a touch more professional, um, which I think is interesting compared to some of the other stuff on the album, which seems a bit more wild and raw, kind of like what you would hear on the, at the cavern. This seems more like a polished studio thing. Um, and I've spoken about this on other episodes. I absolutely love early John and Paul unison vocals, uh, where they're doubling each other and they're so in sync with each other on so many levels that it kind of sounds like a whole third person. Um, like it doesn't sound like John double tracking or Paul double tracking. It doesn't sound like the two of them. It just sounds like its own unique voice. And I really love that in early stuff. Um, and when they switch to the harmony on the word misery, because you've had that singular voice the whole time, the release you get from that harmony, it makes it really stand out. It's absolutely gorgeous. Now the bridge section is actually one of my favorite bridges that they do melodically. I think it's insanely catchy. The descending melody on the vocal then gets answered by the piano absolutely gorgeous and we get the bridge twice in the song which is a rarity in any song and now i think it's also kind of a shame that george doesn't really get a place to shine here in the song but that said i think george martin had the absolute right idea with replacing the guitar with the piano track i think it gives it more maturity um and keeps it from sounding like that kind of raw garage cavern feel i think that's maybe what makes it stand out as a little more polished maybe um but for a filler song for an early track i think it's got a ton of charm and I really, really enjoy the song, even though I have it placed very low. I enjoy many other songs more than this one. But my two cents, I open the floor. Joe, what do you think? Well, I, in general, I, I like this song, but I, I think I like it for a different kind of angle than, than you've said, because mm. one of the things that um, I, I get from that I get from doing the podcast is speaking to... British authors and American authors, you know, you know that fortunately or unfortunately, that's the main kind of prong attack at the moment of, mm. of Beatle books. So something that's really interested me is the difference between how British people see and interact and feel about the Beatles to American people. Mm. So I think there, I think there are certain things that British people understand better about the Beatles and I think there are certain things that American people understand better about the Beatles so if I read a book about um Ed Sullivan okay I'm not gonna understand as try as real as I might precisely what Ed Sullivan was as in the Beatles first show on Ed Sullivan right because which you know is an epochal event in uh, popular culture history of the last hundred years okay I just, I just, I just can't because it's a, it's something that. Whereas, you know, for for Americans, obviously, not everyone watched that show. You know, you guys didn't watch that show because you right. weren't born, okay? <laughs> but maybe even even if your your parents or your you know or a, a friend that worked at a store that you went to watched it, you've got an inherent understanding of that, mm -hmm. which I I don't think I'll ever have. I can't, I'm, you know, uh, talking about John in New York that that's you know uh, his life there I, I i can't grasp i can't understand that as much as you know i've never been to new york mm -hmm. even if you've been to new york once as a british person maybe you'll understand it a bit better and i think with this song what's interesting is i see it as it's a little bit kind of tongue-in-cheek okay mm. so for me because like we said the beatles are big comedy fans i think that you know the world is treating me bad misery there's the opening line to the song that i think i don't think they're being serious i, I think that's a for me 
because there were loads of songs, weren't there, in the early 60s of those kind of uh, crooner, like Bobby, you know, all the Bobbies, Bobby V, right. Bobby Rydell. They were all like, oh, you know, I can't believe she's done this to me and all, all that kind of stuff, which obviously that means it didn't have a big influence on the Beatles. The Beatles listened to rock and roll, you know, American rock and roll and blues. I, I don't think that a lot of that kind of stuff fed into the Beatles' music. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that it's a little bit, um, you know, it's kind of... Although, you know, as a teenager, we can all remember thinking to ourselves, the world's been treating me bad, because you always think when you're a teenager, mm-hmm. the world is treating you bad. <laughs> when it, you know, oftentimes it really isn't, but that's all part of growing up and that's fine. The burden of but youth. I, yeah. Youth is wasted on the young, as they yes. say. Um, so I think, I think it's a little bit, I could be wrong, but I think it's got that um, that kind of almost like a comedic element to it where they're kind of, you know, like mugging for the camera. Mm-hmm. I don't think they really mean it. Um, but I still think it's, uh, I think it's still an interesting song. I mean, number one the thing to remember is it's a, a song that they wrote, which, you know, that's like on that first album, you know, as you guys know, not many people wrote their own songs. Right. Uh, so I think it's important that, purely for the fact that it's a Lennon McCartney song. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about Kenny Lynch, have you ever listened to the Kenny Lynch version of this song? I have. I hadn't listened to it until I started researching for this episode. Right. I don't know what do that you think? I love it. <laughs> I don't know what? that I love it. You've been treating me bad, misery. I'm the kind I, I genuinely so maybe should have let John do the guitar part for that. The, oh yeah, that guitar tone is terrible. <laughs> That's awful. Um, mm. I didn't realize it was the same guy who sang "Up on the Roof." I love that song, but that's also can... like that's a Goffin and King song, and they just are brilliant. But mm. I think he, there's something about that song that feels, um, I don't know, his version of "Misery" seems so sappy. Like he's really mm. leaning into like. I think it's interesting if if. If John and Paul are kind of like, you know, tongue in cheek about it, there's no tongue in cheek. Like in the way he like no. changes the, the the lyrics to "You've been treating yeah. me bad," it's all so drawn out. It didn't quite do it for me. No, but I don't know no. much about we, him apart from "Up on the Roof." Well, he's. I mean, in this, I mean, he died about only only few years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he's seen in over here. He's. Um, I mean, he wasn't well known. You know that recently but in the 60s and 70s he was quite a well-known essentially he's a stand-up comedian um okay. i mean he he's you know he's uh, something that that's t- to remember about him is that he was black mm-hmm. and in you know the, if you looked at british tv 
1963, 64, there weren't many, for whatever reason, black performers mm-hmm. um, on on TV. Uh, certainly not stand up. I can't think of another stand up comedian. You know, we didn't have Richard Pryor. You know, right. I mean, we just didn't have that <laughs> over here at that point. Um, thankfully, there were many, you know, very talented black British comedians now. Uh, but he, so he kind of stood out for that. And he was quite a, um, yeah, just a kind of a, a kind of a homely kind of figure. He wasn't anything, um, he wasn't lucky. He was kind of a family comedian, sure, really. Sure. Um, so, and yeah, as you say, he pops up on Band on the Run. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, it's quite a strange, I, I'm not sure what, obviously Paul must have maintained, I mean, some of the people that are on that cover is quite a, a hodgepodge of yeah, people. yeah. Um, you know, you've got Christopher Lee and uh, James Coburn, mm-hmm. uh, and then you've got uh, Michael Parkinson, who you know is a very well-known in this country um, chat show host. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and yeah, and there's uh, there's there's Kelly Lynch on there. So uh, yeah, he's quite an interesting. I mean, he, so he's the first ever cover version, isn't he? I think yeah. it's the first ever Lennon McCartney cover. The first Lennon McCartney so, cover. Yeah. So that's that's something to be said. Um, but yeah, he, his version, like you say, is a much more serious. Um, yeah, he he makes it sound like a crooner, doesn't he? You know, yeah. he goes into that kind of Bobby V type, yeah, um, type type thing. But uh, I, I like, as you say, I like the like at the end. I think the key thing, actually, at the end, thinking about what you said, is right at the end when they go la 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 la. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's. <laughs> That is the and moment right where fade out. it kind of shows that maybe they are tongue in cheek about it because that is very Bobby, you know, Bobby genre, <laughs> Bobby style, that la 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 type thing. Yeah, yeah. When John cool. does that first, uh, that first O at the end of it, though, like that's like, it's just it's a sweet spot in his voice for me. That's just like God, that dude could sing, like, mm. like soul stuff. Like he really could do like a great vocal on things like that. I, I think he it's kind of his. I feel like it's his song more. I imagine that it was his. He brought it into Paul. I'm, I'm not sure of the the kind of dynamic on that. The dynamic from what I've from what I from what I read is they they both like sat down to write it. Um, okay. They claim it is kind of an equal thing, but maybe I think they both say like it's maybe a touch more John than Paul. Mm. But they both mm. like were in on it, you know, together at the same time. But maybe John led the session a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I feel like it's got his kind of fingerprints on it, yeah. his fingerprints on it a bit more uh, than Paul. But I like one thing that I love about the about that the, the whole album is talking about um, British and American thing. I feel like in when I listen to Misery and some of the other songs on Please Please Me, I feel like in 1963 the Beatles were kind of ours a bit a, a bit because obviously you know they weren't in you know they they weren't well known in America or. Or other countries, you know. So I, I, I love and going back to what I was saying about those BBC sessions, that the majority of those BBC sessions were recorded through 1963 and some in 64 as well. Um, so I've got a huge amount of affection for early, you know, for, for early Beatles because it feels like, you know, that they feel a bit more, you know, as soon as they hit America, they become an international mm-hmm. thing and everyone gets their bit of the Beatles. They do a world tour, obviously do a couple of, a few world tours. So everyone gets their kind of slice of them. They, they feel a bit more, you know, this is quite an English, it's quite an English sounding song. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, in, even though it's, it borrows from that, the American, like we said, the American kind of Bobby thing, it, it's got a real, um, 
it's got quite I don't know it feels kind of quite cold and you know kind of dour in in some respects uh I think it's yeah it, it, it a lot of those early songs um I, I feel kind of a bit more English I can't really explain why yeah but it just in my head they they kind of sound a bit a, a bit more like that but um yeah I think it's I think it's a little bit a little bit tongue-in-cheek most yeah. of it I don't know that's fast. I've never considered that perspective on it, but that it makes a lot of sense, though. That it, it well, very I think well that sort in. of cements the sort of English versus American perspective of the Beatles. Yeah, like yeah, you can identify yeah. that in them because that's. I feel like that's very much like a, a an English trait of you know a bit of tongue in cheek, like a. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean it in no, the no. best way possible. I absolutely love like when you see their humor is amazing it's Mm -hmm. biting and funny and sharp and fast and all the my favorite parts of humor you know it's not it's not mean it's sharp (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is like the best humor Mm -hmm. like you know yeah i i love this take because listening to it i was just like "Uh, okay yeah this definitely sounds like a song they wrote for someone else but putting that that tongue-in-cheek spin on it of like, oh, mm. you guys want to write these crooners? We can write these crooners. Watch us. And they write this yeah. amazing song that's like beautiful and, you know, has these what he, the descending melodies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, George Martin puts these little spins on it. And they're like, yeah, nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, definitely. I think like thinking about humor, you know, how much of an influence do you think was when they landed it in JFK, they give that press conference, don't they? And yeah. it's and they're so funny. They're hilarious. And they're so witty. They're, mm-hmm. if you, you know, if you watch it now, it stands up. Yeah. It's not like, you know, and I think, you know, I don't know what, you know, if you watch an interview with Elvis, you know, that I can't, and I'm not a massive Elvis fan. I haven't right. watched every Elvis interview ever. <laughs> but, you know, I, I can't think of, or even like Sinatra, those there was a different an interview situation. A press conference was, you know, it was it was to promote, it was to sell the latest tour, the latest album. Mm-hmm. They're just they're so quick and funny. Then it's, you get the sense that it's completely unrehearsed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it, you know, I think humor was, and you know, I think for Americans um, speaking as I do for all Americans, <laughs> <laughs> please um, do, cowboy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But that that must have helped. That must that must have contributed to you guys just going, "Wow, these guys are so different." Yeah, mm-hmm. that must have been. You know, the, all the interview, all the press conferences in the f- first tour. You know, by the mid sixties, they get bored and they get tired, and they're not as as funny. Well, and then also, that... like the journalists are more aggressive, and like they're trying to like get them in like a gotcha question. You know, mm. you know, why do you boys not like Jesus Christ? And like. They're just trying yeah. to, like, find a way to, like, shove it into them. And, you know, they're fighting back against it. And they also don't really want to be there anymore. So, and then, no. you know, it's a total, you know, the way you talk about, you know, after the first couple records, they lose a, t- they, a bit of what you, what makes you, like, feel that British connection. It's almost mm. like once they hit that success and they become um, globalized and all these other influences start to become more prominent. So, like their country covers of like, you know, uh, Buck Owens things that might've sounded a bit less country two years prior when they were doing it like in the cavern or just like on like a theater tour. Um, it's almost like those kind of 
I guess, essential British elements, you know, or edges kind of get rounded off a little bit as these yeah. other influences come in. Yeah, I can totally, totally see that. It, it would have been fascinating to see what it, what their albums would have sounded like if they ever recorded in the States. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was such uh, I think they did get, you know, Mark Lewison will dig this up for his new book, I'm sure. Um, but I think there is correspondence where they were going to record at, like, stacks or they were yeah, going to record they, something somewhere. They talked about doing what became Revolver at, uh, at Stax yeah. in Memphis. And um, there's, there's a couple of different things about it. Like there's uh, different dis- stories about why it didn't happen. One is that, you know, they couldn't figure out security because once word got out that the Beatles were in Memphis, you know, it was going to be pandemonium. Um, and Stax is a very small building. Like the Abbey Road Studios complex is massive and Stax right. is a very small building. Um, but then there's also this, the idea that like, Stacks wanted a lot of money for them to go record there. And they were like, ah, we're not going to do that. Um, mm. But yeah, the idea of that. And then those two studios make very different sounding records just on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, in spite, in spite of like what guitars you might play, but like the sounds of those rooms are vastly different and produce vastly different results. And the idea, the, you know, the theory in my head of like, what would have, what would tomorrow never knows have sounded like coming out of Memphis? Mm. Like that would have been, alternate like a whole different universe mm-hmm. like that's a whole different storyline but would it be good or bad i don't you yeah like, who can say you yeah know? like there are some things that i think would have been great there like uh i got to get you into my life mm. with like memphis horns would have been killer mm-hmm. um mm. and there are a lot of things mm. but like it would have been a very different sounding record and i don't know that they would have felt as free to experiment also mm. yeah. in another studio because they wouldn't have had that like natural comfort that I think they had in Abbey Road at that point. Yeah, it's very much a, a home from home, isn't it? Abbey Road. Yeah, you know that was or EMI as it was called then. Right. But I mean, I think like, I think the, the Stones recorded in the sixties in America. I think. They did. I yeah, they know. did. They did do some stuff in I think in Chicago. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it wasn't like beyond. You know, it was. It was. I suppose the. You know, the equipment would have been. Like you say, it would have been a different sounding album. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but then, hey, in a way, I'm kind of glad that they just stayed in leafy London yeah. um, and and just made almost all almost all the music there. Uh, but yeah, I have an, a huge amount of affection for the 1963 Beatles. Um, I mean, the early Be- I've kind of as I've got older, actually, I've I've kind of gone back to the 60 the early beatles more mm-hmm. I, I mean post you know post 2020 and all the 2020 horribleness you know i wanted you know you guys know you just want to feel good yeah. and mm-hmm. i yeah. think you know songs like um you know the beginning of hard days night makes me feel good yeah and, it's just happy you know mm-hmm. i mean ha- happy you know that music even though this song is called misery somewhat ironically uh you know the majority of the songs that they wrote on the f- first four albums really they're designed to make people dance mm-hmm. generally and be and feel happy. You know, n- not a lot of music that's made today is, uh, you don't get the sense that it's designed to make people feel happy. And obviously music is supposed to make us feel all these different things, you know, excited, sad, introspective, angry, whatever. But, you know, my personality is just, I, I, I'm quite a fan of being happy. Yeah. So I like music that makes me feel that makes me feel happy. And I think the early Beatles, yeah, a lot of this, 
and this song makes me feel happy you know it, it's it's called misery but it's pretty jaunty yeah you know it, it's it skips along you can like sing you said, along not... the entire time and you know yeah. and not have to feel yeah. sad about it yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely you never feel sad about singing along to anything yeah um but uh yeah you're right george is not sent to stay george is quite i think for most of please please me there's he's not a huge figure is he i don't think he um yeah uh, obviously but second even by the second even though he sings you know, obviously he sings on chains and um do you want to know a secret but of course by the second time he's writing his own songs mm-hmm. um bother me appears so uh, yeah, i think he's the one thing you know ringo keeps the uh, it's quite an, it's an energy isn't there in yeah. this song yeah uh, and ringo's great i mean how good is ringo at just keeping that feel keeping the the, the time perfectly um mm-hmm. on obviously on all beatles songs but uh, yeah, no, I, I listened to the song obviously a few times in the in the run up to our conversation today, and he, yeah, it, I felt I got that little kind of halo of happiness from it, and hey, we need that, don't we? We at the do, moment. we do. For sure. One of the things I I keep thinking about, you know, it's really interesting that this song that they put it as the second song on this record, um, yeah, because that's a pretty like high profile slot on a record. Um, so it's interesting that to me that they're not putting one of the singles there or, mm. uh, you know, arguably like you can say like, well, what are the, what are the other Lennon McCartney songs that are maybe better than that? And I've tried to like, look at the track listing and replace it, but I don't okay. know that anything else works there. Like maybe there's a place might be the only real close option, but I don't know that that carries the right energy into it, you know? Um, mm. So it's, inter- you know, I think it's interesting that they took a song that was, and this makes me wonder if it's a Brian Epstein move. If it's like, well, let's take this thing that, you know, shows that we can write songs that could be considered for, you know, someone else. And then you're very professional songwriters and stick that mm. up there as well. So it's almost more of like a calling card thing. Mm. I, I found that a very interesting thing in terms of like the track listing. Cause I know that they're not considering track listing at this point. Like, this is probably George Martin and Brian, you know, putting it together over a phone call or, you know, just talking it out. Um, but yeah, I thought that was an interesting place for it to be. It's a fascinating thing of like the idea of track listing. When did that become, when did people start to make, you know, now it's like, oh, the, you've got to put the a certain kind of song as the third track. And then mm-hmm. you've got to, you know, you, you have that, you, you have that whole thing of ending side one, you know, you, you deliberately kind of panned out what the last... Uh, song on a particular side would be and then that disappears when you get cds yeah uh, then it just becomes one long uh on long kind of piece but yeah i wonder where the idea of, like you say i imagine that this the i don't know what influence what um decisions they made about i mean you know i saw her standing there that's built to be a first song yeah, on that's an album. the opener for sure mm-hmm. yeah because you've got the count you know the counting is you know what a brilliant way to start an album is oh. one two three four yep and you're there, you're there. But yeah, it's interesting. I I don't know where um I don't know what influence they had on whether or not this should be the second track or yeah. this this should be the first track on side two or. or and as or I'm whatever. looking at it right now, it seems very business savvy because track side one ends with please please me, the first number mm. one. Side two starts with love me do, so it's almost like they're enticing the listener to listen all the way through to side, to the end of the side one, and then you know the first song on side two, so flip it over. And, you know, it's it, that seems like a very astute business move to, like, sell an album 
as opposed to just like just put you know 13 other you know filler tracks on there and stick it out and let's make some cash like this seems like a very smart move do you um, mean yeah. to tell me <laughs> that the Beatles were fairly business savvy and oh, the people surrounding people them surrounding them were fairly business savvy <laughs> yeah stop you don't say you don't say you don't say <laughs> people like money what can I say? they do <laughs> they do shocking so how do we feel gang how do we feel at number 174 out of 223 do you think i'm too high or too low or in the right ballpark where would you put it joe i i would put it in absolutely the this ballpark or football pitch in my country <laughs> yes <laughs> we don't have ballparks That's really true, I don't, yeah. we, we, we probably don't, we have, there's probably a few um yeah i think you're about right i think it's um it, it sits in that Actually, coming back to it in preparation for this, I liked it more than I remembered. Mm-hmm. I liked it, but then if I if I, I probably would get up with any Beatles song. Yeah. I mean, there's it's only about five or six that I'm like, no, I, I can't. I, I don't get much joy from. Um, and even the ones I don't like, there's something, you know, like even on a even a Paul solo song that's not great, there'll be a little there's chord a change thing like, that'll catch you, and you're like, oh, I like yeah, that. yeah, mm-hmm. and that's that's me. Um, yeah, I would say it's in that kind of... Uh, I think you've got it in the right bracket. I think it's got a certain charm to it. And for me, as a, a UK listener, it's got that slight... You know, like the Goons? You know, the Goons, Peter Sellers mm-hmm. comedy group? They were a big influence, obviously, on the Beatles. And Ringo did a film with Peter Sellers, etc. Mm-hmm. George was a great friend. It's got that slight English... Um, uh, yes, self-pity, joking self-pity tongue-in-cheek looking looking at the camera and winking at the camera type situation right. and I, I find that endlessly charming more than you know the performance etc which i think he's he's put is fine mm-hmm. uh, but I, I think you're um yeah i think you're right did you enjoy it more listening to it in preparation for this or how did you feel about it kind of coming back to it i really i found myself i think liking it more when i came back to prepare for it and really listening to the outtakes was really mm. fascinating. Um, I, I mean, I could do that all day with Beatle outtakes, um, but it's what—it's kind of like it's rare to get almost every take of a song out there. Like from the Beatles, it, you don't have that with well, too many Beatle songs. Um, it's the same kind of enjoyment you get from listening to like the Strawberry Fields demo all the way through, where you're just watching this thing grow. And, you know, hearing them, you know, go through this track, as simple as it is, missing chords here and there, botching lyrics, uh, George trying to kind of figure out the timing on this little riff part, Um, you know, Ringo, you know, adding little fills and then taking them out in the next take and uh, everybody kind of fine tuning. You know, there's this the Beatles have this great talent of knowing when enough is enough on a song and never Mm. overdoing anything. And you can see in early takes as they're trying things and thinking, oh, that's cool. Then they try it again. And then the next take, it's gone. Because maybe it just you don't need that fill. Just play it straight all the way through, Ringo. Like, that's all the song needs. And you don't miss it. And finding the, you know, hearing them learn how to do that is endlessly fascinating to me. Um, and again, like, for me, anytime the two of them are, like, doing a unison vocal, I'm there. Like, it's just, it's such a cool vocal sound to me that I think is like the hallmark of early Beatle things that I love. Um, mm. So, you know, 
that's, you know, I really, I, I think I enjoyed it a lot more than I remembered I did. What do you think? Where, where would you put it, my dear? I think it, it sits pretty well. I actually enjoy it a little bit more with Joe's take on it. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> thinking of it as like a tongue in cheek as opposed to a very serious composition by very serious people. Because I was wondering, I'm like, they're pretty young at this point. Like, this is a pretty intense song for such young people to write. And yeah. then you said that it was written for someone else who was probably a little bit older for a than woman. them. Yeah. See, that's my other question. Is is, what's bit... the first line of the song for Helen Shapiro? Because in here it's, I'm the type of guy who never used to cry. So what's that lyric from her perspective when they present it to her? I have to wonder, mm. if was there, a, origi- was there a different lyric on it originally mm. that maybe nobody knows? I don't know. Maybe. How old she, was course, she? Well, she was. That, that, the thing about her that's interesting is she was a big star in the UK in 1962, and her gimmick or if you whatever was she was 14 when she first became famous. She was um, she was like a child star, like a kind of uh, I don't know, like a Shirley Temple. She she wasn't an actress, but her yeah her kind of shtick, if you can call it that, was that she happened to be young, and they did um, uh, there was like a, a, a she was shown on TV recording. Like she, it was like a kind of documentary about the, her recording some of the songs. She was a big star in about 1961. She had a big hit called Walking Back to Happiness. I have loved you more each day, walking back to happiness. Whoop-ah, yeah. Said goodbye to loneliness. Whoop-ah, yeah. Uh, Whoop-yah, oh yeah, is the next line. Um, <laughs> which is a, which is a good, fun, uh, fun song. And then, uh, unfortunately, she... Um, uh, yeah, her, her kind of pop career did fade away post Beatles, like a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, uh, she, I think she, she's obviously because she was young when she was famous. She's still with us now. She's done some really. Uh, yeah, she's interviewed a lot about the Beatles because she did that first tour. Yeah, mm-hmm. big, big, big crush on John, who apparently was um, obviously a bit older and was incredibly gentlemanly and was very kind and understanding. Thank to God. Her. <laughs> Goodness for that! Um, Yikes! Uh, but yeah, it's interesting because yeah, she was. So she would have been. So when she was on tour with them, she was like sixteen. Yeah. Um, wow. So they wrote this for a sixteen-year-old. That's shocking. I assumed that she was at no. like bare minimum, like mid to late twenties or something. She like had, it seems like such a mature song. As far as I know, I don't think she ever had any real impact in the states commercially. Like okay. my entire knowledge of Helen Shapiro is that she was the headliner on that first tour. Like, I I know not much else about her. Um, I don't so I don't know that anything ever crossed over here for mm-hmm. her. No, I mean it was quite an English, quite a tinny sound. It had mm-hmm. that kind of the pre-Beatle early '60s sound. You know, like people like Cliff Richard. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of those English acts, Adam Faith. They they just didn't translate over over to you guys that I you know it's you know because you had like you know you had a lot more going on and you know you were you had all the rock and roll stuff and then you had like you know some of those early Phil Spector stuff you know mm-hmm. if you look at the stuff it was you know you had it just had much more lush sounding and records like in sixty two you know she's having hits in sixty one sixty two that's when we get like the Beach Boys are the biggest band in the country at that point like early early beach boys like jan and dean surf rock stuff becomes like you know the flavor of the moment because elvis had been in the army uh at that Mm. point and kind of uh, you know the early rock and roll guys kind of uh, you know various legal things brought them out of the spotlight for a bit 
Um, and then, you know, the Beach Boys took over for a bit and then the Beatles hit. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, then, you know, all bets are off at that point. But yeah, it's very a very different time in American music there, for sure. Interesting. There's a there is a clip of her on which is worth seeking out, which you might have already seen actually. Uh, Ready, steady, go! I think, which was the big pop kind of TV show we had in the early to mid sixties. She's doing a song called "Look Who It Is," which is which sounds. She's one of those artists that like had a hit, and then all the other songs would sort of sound like that song. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which. What you get now, you know, that's not a new thing. Sure. Um, uh, and so she's doing, and the Beatles were on the same show. Um, they had, they had their kind of the the, the no collar uh, suits on, and she's doing "Look Who It Is," and she's singing it to the th- and there's I think it's Ringo, uh, George and and John, and she's kind of like singing it to them and like putting her arm on their sh- uh, her arm on their shoulder and stuff so uh, there's a little bit of film which is it's on youtube but, yeah uh, so okay. but yeah uh, unfortunately she's not um her singing career kind of went a little bit by by the wayside but she she's you know she's she's uh, she's still with us and she did a good documentary about um uh, you know her kind of time with the beatles about 10 15 years ago so nice. uh, but yeah her singing this song as you you know, as you just said, then it's quite a, a stretch to imagine her yeah. singing it because it is, um, yeah, for her kind of angelic sixteen-year-old kind of you know you know like how how women dressed in the early sixties. She was you know very kind of dressed in a quite a conservative manner mm-hmm. and you know very, very neat hair and stuff. And the world is treating me bad. Might not have fit with that look, <laughs> but, right? Yeah. We'll never know. We'll never know. No. Yeah. You almost wish that she would like do a cover of it now. <gasps> that would <laughs> like, be funny. Let's do it, man. Like, why not? Maybe she has. I'm I'm sort of amazed. You know, people have, people have dined out on the Beatles enough, as we all know. Right? Um, that I I would have thought she might have thought about at least singing it live or something. Yeah. She used to tour, you know, she would still have like an audience. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, she did have those those few hits. Um, but yeah, the, uh, I'm, I'm amazed that she's never. Yeah, like she's never, she's never would would she be at like at the International Beatles Festival as like a speaker or performer? Is she the kind of person they would have? Because that'd be fast. Mm-hmm. Right, Helen, let's do it now. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> pick the key. We got you. No, I think I th- she's not. I just tend to do those things. I can't. The, the times that I've been and been aware of, she hasn't been. Because I think she tries to like a lot. Some people quite understandably try and keep their own career separate. you know separate mm. rather than just being a Beatle person you know yeah. someone like Bill someone like Bill Harry that wrote you know that started the Mersey Beat newspaper he's he's a professional Beatles person and that's fine and that keeps his a roof over his head and, and whatever but yes yeah, she, she's someone that's got enough just in the UK certainly enough of a kind of a career to um to not have to do that but she's spoken about the Beatles at length about that about that tour um you know that's uh because of course the embarrassing thing for her was people weren't really there to see her yeah by the you end know, of the tour they, they're the they're the big headliner yeah even though they're not the headliner yeah did they end yeah, up exactly. switching on that tour am I correct on that it might yeah because they like, did the other tour yeah Sorry. the other tour they did was with um Chris Montez and Tommy Rowe, yeah. Chris, who did Let, Let's Dance, so that was his big hit, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a kind of fun early 60s song. I think that might be the tour where they'll switch. I'm sure the internet will tell us in your emails. Yes, <laughs> it will be in the comments. Yes. I think that's also know. the tour where I think Tommy Rowe beat the crap out of John 
at some point. Right. Like okay. John got drunk and like talked some shit and dumped a beer on his head, and the dude just clocked him in the face. Yikes. <laughs> Misery. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Joe, do you, do you have some time for some rapid fire questions before we let you go? Absolutely. Far away. Wonderful. All right. <laughs> rapid fire number one. Your favorite Beatles song, and it can be just today or all time. Today, we can work it out. Love it. Mm. Least favorite. Probably hold me tight. Ooh, okay. With the Beatles. Yeah. yeah don't just not there yeah sorry fair enough uh favorite album hard days night least favorite album controversial okay mm. controversial take it might be and i can feel the weight on my shoulders <laughs> Do you know what least favorite album it's it might be let it be I yeah. think it's going to be Let It Be. Yeah, I think it's, there's there's no, there's not as much, you know, as you know, the love and the energy are kind of starting to fade away when they're making that. And, uh, I, you know, the thing I love about the Beatles is the hope and the positivity and the energy. And I think some of those songs, it's not, it's not there in time. So probably Let It Be. Gotcha, gotcha. And your favorite memory associated with the Beatles or a Beatles song or a Beatle? Well, <laughs> I, I will need a second to I think about that. One. Hang on. Yeah, my favourite memory. Uh, probably. Do you know what? Probably, as I said, I used to go and see my dad every Saturday, and he would have. He had all the Beatles albums that he bought on vinyl. Uh, and in 1993, 1994, vinyl was, as you remember, kind of less of a thing it was mm-hmm. hey who wants who wants records no one wants records <laughs> who wants to carry those um, things around exactly i'd rather have a mini disc or something i don't know a disc um, man <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i would just go and 10 11 year old me saturday afternoon in in uh, his my dad's house that he still lives in now it's very nice um quiet english suburby house that he lives in he we would take out the albums and we would talk and he would tell me well that song is about that and that song goes like that and this is from when they were kind of crazy and took loads of drugs and uh he uh, he kind of gave me the uh yeah the the ground in 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 the beatles so just just those those cold saturday afternoons learning about the beatles um and uh yeah that's probably my my favorite memory that's fantastic i love that that's wonderful wonderful well joe Tell all of our listeners, where can they hear the Beatles Books podcast? Where can they follow well, you on the socials? Uh, so we have we have two socials. We have the Instagram, the aforementioned Instagram page, <laughs> uh, which is at Books Beatles, where every day I, uh, I'm archiving and then discussing um, my collection of Beatles books. Uh, also on Twitter, um, again, at Books Beatles, uh, where I... Uh, talk about uh, the podcast and other kind of tweety type things um and the beatles book beatles book podcast is uh, on all the usual uh podcast platforms yep. um uh where each each uh, it's released i aim to release every two weeks uh sometimes i get a bit clogged up and have to release some more as you guys probably sympathize with that oh yeah <laughs> um and uh so yeah i speak to uh beetle authors about either forthcoming or existing books or other 
writers and podcasters about their favorite Beatles books. And how did the podcast come about for you? Because I think you started this in September, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not far behind us. We started in, did we start July? in September? Uh, July. July or August. July? So I think we're part of what like uh, Sam Wiles from Paul or Nothing calls like the third wave of, <laughs> of Beatle podcasters. It's nice to be in a wave, quite right? frankly. Um, <laughs> I'll take it. So do you know what? It kind of came out of, as I was saying, like the publishers would send me the books. A couple of them, separate kind of emails came in and they were like, well, um, and, you know, I'm, I get it completely. They're thinking about commercial aspect they want to sell books mm-hmm. uh they were like two of them said maybe there's a podcast kind of idea in this um uh, because uh, you know clearly you've got a lot of knowledge and um you've got a big collection of people's books you thought about doing a podcast and the first time i read it i was like no i don't think so and then <laughs> randomly another publisher emailed me to say this is a new book by whoever have you thought about doing a podcast maybe you should do a podcast <laughs> Um, and then I was I was a guest on the wonderful Two Legs podcast, mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure you guys are aware of. That do a lot of great stuff about Paul, and I really enjoyed yes. doing that. And yeah, it started in September with uh, Ken Womack, uh, and then I had Ken McNabb, my, my second guest. I was like, Am I just going to interview Ken? Is, is it going to be Ken? You know, I can't think of anyone else famous called Ken. But yeah, um, uh, so yeah, and it, it went on from there. So, oh, and it, it's such a, a joy to do. I, I I love it. Speaking to people from all over the world. Yeah. Um, it's just a, a fantastic, uh, it's a real labour of love. For, for sure. And, uh, and it's great that people like it. It's lovely to get, as you guys know, I'm sure it's great to get really good feedback. Yeah, it's great to get feedback. And, you know, it, it's fun, you know, Growing up, and you probably came from the same situation, you know, growing up in the 90s, where the internet wasn't what it was today. Like, I didn't do the bulletin board sites things uh, as a kid. Um, so I really had no one to, like, share my fandom with uh, of the Beatles. Like, I remember going into class one day and talking to it about kids at the table next to me, and they looked at me like I was an alien. Like, they could not have cared less. So, you know, it took me a long time to you know, find my tribe of people who are into this same thing. And one of the things I've loved about doing this for the last, you know, six, eight months, whatever it's been, is like meeting all these people that are fans and that host podcasts like this um, or listen to podcasts like this and like becoming friends with them and getting to talk and getting to know them. Uh, Like it's been such a joy to do it. And, Mm. you know, I absolutely, you know, we have a ball doing this. It's yeah. so much and fun. And learning new perspectives. Learning and new perspectives it, on something like, that I've listened to a million times. Yeah. Like, it's so much it's fun. It's like fresh for you It's again. freshening. It's, yeah, it's refreshing my love of this music, for sure. Well, Joe Wisby, thank you so much, man. We really, really appreciate you coming on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. And uh, everybody, please check out the, uh, the Beatles Books podcast and Books Beatles on Instagram and Twitter. Wonderful. And go buy some Thanks, books. Thanks, guys. And go buy some books. Yeah, we're going to do that. <laughs> Joe Wisby, everybody. What a blast. How was that? That was amazing. He so totally much fun. blew my mind with his take on the song. Yeah. And I am very happy. That Likewise. I had not considered that perspective yeah. that it's tongue-in-cheek. I love it. Totally game changer. Like it better. I also will have to thank him. 
personally for um, pretty much you giving me the green light to buy all the Beatles books that I want now. <laughs> whoa, uh, whoa, whoa. I didn't shout say Shout out, all. Joe. Thanks, nope, bro. Nope, nope. Did not say all. <laughs> I said those that he mentioned sound very good. I'm just going to start hitting the Amazon wish list and Listen. just clickety, clickety, clickety. One click, one click, one click, one click. Listen, I get the email notifications. I will know. Ah. I will go in and cancel. Yeah, you will. <laughs> <laughs> so, friends, what do you all think? about misery at 174 too high too low or just like baby bear's porridge just right let us know on the comments on facebook twitter instagram all those good places you can follow us on facebook at ranking the beatles you can follow us on instagram at ranking the beatles you can follow us on twitter at Ranking Beatles. That's right. Nailed it. Nailed it. Uh, <laughs> let us know what you think. We love, love, love getting your feedback. We love your comments. Uh, we love your reviews. We've gotten some really, really nice reviews lately uh, that have meant a whole lot to us. Uh, so thank you for that. And um, we've gotten some really nice uh, DMs on Instagram lately. Had some really interesting conversations uh, with people from all over the place. Uh, talked yesterday with a listener from Israel. Amazing. Yeah, love it. Wonderful. Fantastic. So thank you all so much for enjoying our show. We hope you're digging it. We're having a lot of fun with it. Uh, go listen to Joe's wonderful podcast, The Beatles Books Podcast. Uh, he's got no shortage of episodes to do because, you know, 1,500 books. Yikes. Get on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and his Instagram feed is fantastic as well. So many cool things to see on there. Mm -hmm. So that's it for today, y'all. Uh, so until next week, have a wonderful week, and uh, we'll holler at you next Tuesday, or whatever day you listen to us, uh, with a brand new episode. So, till then, I'm Jonathan. And I'm Julia. This is Ranking the Beatles. Adios. Bye, y'all.